It's okay, normally it's me who's still walking around when Pastor Doug's trying to preach. (laughs) All right, well, good morning. Um, Just gives me great joy to be here to to bring you God's word this morning. And we're going to start off with the question we're going to try to answer today. And that question is, who is the word of God? And to answer that, we're going to spend some time this morning in the first 13 chapters of the prologue to John's Gospel in, in chapter 1. I think the prologue shows us the word like a fine diamond, right? A diamond has many facets, many aspects that you can look, and if you hold it up to the light and you rotate it a little bit, you can see another facet. And each of those facets work together to show you the beauty and the perfection and the radiance of that diamond to, to more fully appreciate it. And so this morning... We're going to look at the word just like a fine diamond, that we we rotate and we look at each facet that John wants to show us to take in the beauty and perfection of Jesus. And this is the first sermon we're going to have in a a four-sermon series for Advent. Uh, And it's, I think, fitting and appropriate, right? In Advent, what do we do? We are historically the Christian church. The people of God, they reflect on the incarnation. They reflect on who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so we're going to be doing that this morning as well in our passage. So let's, let's pick up our diamond now together. Pick up your Bible, open it up to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. And we're going, to, we're going to rotate that diamond just a little bit, and we're going to see the answer to the question, who is the Word of God? And John's going to tell us that it's God who came into the world in the person of Jesus the Son to bring the light of salvation into the heart of darkened darkened heart of man, of the darkened world. So let's read our passage together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And as we we venture into our text today, as we look at this diamond, it's really important that we understand John's purpose in writing the gospel. And he tells us that in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that, for the purpose of, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. So John's purpose was what? It was to evangelize, right? John's purpose was to evangelize, to proclaim Christ, to proclaim Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, and that by that, people would believe, and they might have eternal life. So John sets out to tell us. He's going to tell us in his prologue who Jesus is, who the Word is. And prologues often give us what we would call a backstory. 
right? Prologues tell us something about the main character that oftentimes people in the story actually don't know or maybe they don't know it yet. And sometimes they also give us a preview, right? They, they show us the contours of the story that's coming so that we can see things. And John's prologue does both. We find out something about Jesus, and John gives us a, well, a lens, maybe, right, through which we can view the rest of, of his gospel. It functions maybe as, a, as an entryway, drawing us into the story, introducing several major themes that John is going to unfold throughout his gospel. We're going to hear about them even in our prologue, like life, light, darkness, witness, the world, and believe. So let's, let's take that diamond now. Let's take our beautiful diamond, and let's look at the first facet. And we're going to look at the first facet in verses 1 through 4, and we're going to ask this question over and over again today. Who is the Word of God? And the answer is that Jesus the divine self-revelation of God the Father. You mightn't have noticed when you saw the, the first four verses that John uses the word word, which is in the Greek logos, uses it three times in the first verse. He uses it four times in, this, uh, in the prologue, which goes through verse 18. But you also might have noticed that he doesn't tell you who that is in the first 13 verses. So he uses it three times, doesn't say who it is. And he also doesn't tell us what he means by it. But the prologue is a narrative, right? And narratives tend to unfold. And John's prologue, over 18 verses, unfolds to its crescendo in verses 14 through 18. And that's where John finally reveals to us who he's talking about. That he's talking about Jesus, that the word is Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. Look with me at verses 14 and 17 for a moment. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So John tells us that Jesus is the word, but he still hasn't told us what he means by the term. By the word. How is he, he using it? And it's a term in the first century that would have carried, carried a lot of meaning to people. If you were a, a Greek philosopher, you would say it was the impersonal principle of reason or order in the universe. And the commentator Leon Morris, I think, helps us here with a, a, more, a better definition than I had. He writes, for the Stoics, it was essentially a principle or force. But the important thing is that if it was a principle, it was the supreme principle of the universe. It was the force that originated and permeated and directed all things. But to the Jew, it would likely have taken this meaning from the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament where God's word is connected with this powerful activity in creation, in revelation, in salvation. Like we see in Psalm 33, 6 and 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breadth of his mouth, all their host. For he spoke it, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. And these are all helpful background for us to sort of understand what someone might have understood when they heard that word. But to truly, truly understand it this morning, we need to know how John used it. We need to let John tell us that. And we're going we're gonna to do that. We're going to look through the gospel here this morning. And John's gospel will show us that the word refers to God, the word refers to God, the Father's divine self-revelation 
through which he acts and reveals himself and his saving purposes to the world. I'm going to say that again. The word refers to God the Father's divine self-revelation through which he acts and reveals himself and his saving purposes to the world. Let's look at a few places where John helps us see that. In John 17, 7 through 8, Jesus is, is praying to God the Father, and he says that he has manifested or revealed the Father to them, and that the words he speaks are the Father's words. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. And those words are life-giving words. They're life-giving words that reveal God's saving purpose to the world and his act to save those who believe. In John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Who is the word of God? Jesus is the word of God. God, the divine self-revelation of God the Father through which he acts and reveals himself and his saving purposes to the world. And so now we're going we're gonna to pick that diamond back up again and we're going to rotate it again, right? We're going to let John show us Jesus, the word of God, but from a different angle, a different facet. And as we rotate our diamond, we're going to see that the word of God is Jesus the eternal pre-existent creator God who shined the light of life into a dark world. Look with me again at verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. I think John just wants us to see the magnificence of Christ because he describes it in a way that no other gospel writer described him. He wants them to see that Jesus was God at creation before anything at all existed and that through him God created everything. And then he wants us to see him as both fully God and yet distinct from him. That is, he wants us to see three things this morning. Jesus is eternally preexistent, that Jesus is God, and Jesus is creator. In the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, all of them start with the earthly ministry or the early life of, of Jesus' birth narratives. But John tells us the backstory here. He, he goes way back, right? Before the virgin birth, before John the Baptist, right? Fact. He goes so far back that he goes back before time began. He goes back to the beginning with the one who has no beginning or end. John's opening words are, in the beginning. And if your mind thinks of Genesis 1-1, then John's intent was accomplished, right? John wants his readers to see the word as, as both there at creation and existing before everything was created. Because Jesus, the word, eternally preexisted. And on top of that, John paints us a, a picture that one, of, one is distinguishable from the other and that there never was a time when the word was not because he existed in all eternity with God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. 
If we rotate our diamond just a little bit more, we'll see John's next stunning truth about who is the Word of God. We're going to see that John tells us that Jesus, the Word, is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John, John moves quickly through this one short little sentence to say so much, right? That not only was the preexistent word there at the beginning with God, but that he was, in fact, God. That's a stunning statement to make. And here we have, a, we have a hint of the Trinity, right? The God had one God and three persons. And so what does it mean to say that, though? What does it mean to say that Jesus, the Word, is God? Say Jesus, the word is God, means whatever can be said about God can be said about Jesus because he is fully God. Jesus alone is not the fullness of the Godhead, but rather he is God. And John, I think as if to remind us, to, to double underline the point that while God is, he is God, he is also distinct in his person. John repeats himself in verse 2 saying, in the beginning... He was with God. And John's opening phrase in the beginning definitely has brought our minds to the creation account and certainly brought theirs. And in Genesis, God creates the world by doing what? Speaking it into existence. And John tells us that Jesus, the Word, did that too. So we're going to rotate our diamond just a little more again. We're going to take a look at it. We're going to look at this next facet. And we're going to see that Jesus, the Word, is creator. Verses 3 and 4. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In verses 3 and 4, John's taking us back to creation, where God spoke the world into existence. And he says, he says that the Word, Jesus, created Everything in the universe, everything was created through him, and nothing, nothing was created apart from him. That should, that should floor us. It had to be stunning news to them. It certainly should floor us, right? We should stand amazed at Jesus, the pre-existent creator God who made us in everything we see and even what we can. Paul in Colossians 1.16 tells us the same marvelous and glorious truth about Jesus. He says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And the word John uses for made in verse 3 is actually a little bit more precise in the original language. It, it means came into being or created. And John, as if to fend off that person who says, okay, John, I hear you, but all things, really? You know, what about that? What about this? John says no. John says all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And it's even more emphatic than that, actually, in the original. What he actually says is apart from him, not one thing came into being that came into being. That means anything you can think of, anything that came into being was created through Jesus. Through it, it came into being, and there's nothing that hasn't. And that includes life. 
That includes life given to mankind. In verse 4, John writes that Jesus had life in him, and the light, it was the light that gave all humanity physical life. Jesus the Word, the eternally pre-existent creator God, who gave the light of life to mankind. Now we've looked at several facets this morning already of, of our diamond, and we've seen the beauty and perfection of Jesus who came into the world to rescue people from the darkness. And he, to rescue them from the darkness so that those who would believe in him would have life in him, eternal life. But Jesus, the word, is the divine self-revelation of God the Father. That is eternally preexistent, that he is God, the creator God, who made the universe and gave life to all mankind. And friends, we should stand in awe of this. We should. It's as if John is saying to us, behold your God. And I say that, and, 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 and as I say that, I, I, I have to ask, and I'm talking to each of you, I have to ask, has that truth hit you in your heart yet this morning? Has that sunk into your soul who Jesus is? I think we can at times be so familiar with the word of God that when we read it, we don't respond in awe and reverence for God. We just read over the words. We've seen it too many times. Many people probably have actually memorized this and know it. But we fail to see the beauty of Jesus when we do that. We fail to see the beauty of God. And sure, we know the intellectual truths and we believe them. I'm not saying we don't. But do they drive you to your knees in worship? They should. They should drive each and every one of us to our knees in worship. And I'll be honest, when I began to study the passage, I read it with intellectual curiosity because I wanted to know what it meant. I wanted to know how to explain it, to sit up here today and, and talk about it. But as I read it, over and over and over again, something happened. I began to stand in awe of my Savior. And the truth is, we should expect this from, words, from God's word, shouldn't we? Amen. Yes, amen. The Bible teaches us that God's word transforms our hearts. That it accomplishes God's purpose in us. And praise his name for that glorious and wonderful gift, right? And especially in this season of Advent, right? This, what, what, what happens in the four weeks before Christmas? We're distracted. Got to get those Christmas cards out, right? I got to make sure it's the right Christmas card. I got to make sure I got everybody on my list. I got to start decorating. And oh my gosh, did you see the traffic yesterday? It was terrible. I couldn't even walk through the mall. We are a stressed out people during this season. We're focusing on the wrong thing. We're, we're, we're distracted by the things of the world this season. And so I, I have a request. In this Advent season, as you are hopefully reflecting on the incarnation, on who Jesus is, on who came to rescue people from the darkness, pull out the diamond and rotate it. Gaze upon the beauty of your Savior. Fully God, who came in the person of the Son, the promised Messiah to rescue you from the darkness. 
Ponder that this season in your heart and see if it is not warmed. See if it is not warmed by the blazing fire of God's love in Christ for you. John is saying to you, behold, this is Jesus. Behold, you are God who came to save you. Well, we're going to rotate one more time. And we're going to, again, gaze upon the beauty and perfection of Christ. We're now going to be in verses 5 through 13. And we're going to keep asking this question. Who is the word of God? And as we rotate it, John's going to show us another truth. That Jesus is the word, is the true light that came to shine in the darkened heart of man. Let's reread our, our verses, verses 5 through 13. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And as I, as I listen to those words, talking about rotating our diamond, right? I feel like John forces us to rotate it not a little, but a lot here, like 180 degrees. And I say that because in verse 4, he had just said that Jesus had given physical life to all mankind, and now he's talking about spiritual life, about salvation. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Prior to this, you might have noticed that all the verbs in the very first part were in the past tense, right? The word was, the word made. But John here starts using the present tense, which means something like, the light continues to shine in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Just as God, through Jesus, spoke into existence light, saying, let there be light into the dark, formless world, so God now brings light into the darkened hearts of men through Jesus, the Word. And John's going to talk a lot about light and darkness in his gospel. And they're symbols, symbols for the ongoing struggle between good and evil. That would have been a pretty common understanding in the first century. It's a dualistic worldview, right, where people find themselves on one side or the other. But like before, we need to let John tell us what he means when he uses light and darkness. And for John, Jesus is the light that shines in the darkened heart of mankind with the offer of salvation to those who believe in him. Let's let John help us see what he means. In John 14, 6, we see Jesus as the light shines on the path to God the Father when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus declares himself to be the light of the world in John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
In John 12, 46, Jesus says that he came into the world as the light. And why did he come into the world as the light? So that whoever believes in him would not remain in the darkness. And last one, John 12, 35 and 36, Jesus tells us when we don't walk in the light, the darkness will overtake us and we will wander around lost. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Jesus is the true light of salvation. The only light, the only light that can shine in our darkened hearts. And if we don't believe him, if we don't follow him, he says, we will remain in the darkness. But in John's gospel, darkness is more than just the absence of light. Right? When we think about darkness, we think about, well, darkness, we would say, yep. There's no light, therefore it's dark, right? Darkness. In its most basic sense, that's, that's what it means. We can say without the light of Christ in our heart to shine and illumine our path to God, we'll remain in the darkness. But as I said, John, John uses it differently. He, he, he means more than that, more than just the absence of light. For John, it's the presence of evil and rebellion against God in the world. Those who love the darkness do so because their works are evil. And in 1 John, John tells us that those who say they walk in the light but actually walk in darkness, they don't practice the truth, they hate their brothers, and they are blinded by the darkness. The darkness is the fallen world in sin and rebellion against God in which man lives and participates. And John, I think, is taking us back here again to Genesis when God created the heavens and the earth and said it was good. And that is until Genesis 3, right? When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, seeking to be like him in sin and death, entered the world. And we have the curse of the fall, plunging the world into darkness because of mankind's rebellion. And man's nature from this point forward is sinful. And he continues to do evil things. He hates the light. Because he doesn't want his sin exposed. Because he actually likes the darkness. And we only need to look around at our world, don't we? We live in a world where people fight for the right to kill babies. We live in a world filled with violence and injustice. We live in a world where sin pervades. And the world likes it so much that they want to be entertained by it. They make TV shows and movies that glorify violence and sexual sin and disdain for God. In a darkened world, mankind walks in the darkness in sin and rebellion against their maker. And his heart, his heart is darkened. He doesn't naturally move toward the light because he likes his sin. He likes the darkness. But this is the darkness into which the light of Christ shines. And that's good news. That's good news. God's, John says that darkness cannot overcome the light. Yeah, amen. God's plan of salvation made in eternity for the foundation of the world 
seeking to save a people for himself in Christ, can't be thwarted. And even though it may have looked like that, even though it may have looked like the darkness could overcome the light that day on Calvary when they crucified the Lord of life, it may have looked bleak. In fact, you know it did. It may have looked like the darkness had overcome the light, <laughs> but it didn't. Amen. John was there, and John knows. Jesus defeated death when he rose in his glorious resurrection. That's why he can say, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the darkness can't overcome the light. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.6. So let's rotate our diamond just a little bit more and let's look at the next glorious facet of Jesus. And what do we see? We see that the true light that came to shine the darkened hearts of man is also the true light that broke through the darkness. Now, I'm going to come back to John the Baptist in verses 6 through 8 here in a moment, but look with me down at verses 9 through 11. In John 9 through, 1, 9 through 11, John tells us that the true light, the true light, Jesus the Word was coming into the world and that he actually entered it. He's clearly here talking about the incarnation of Christ, Jesus breaking into the world to save sinners. That's the picture. In the person of the Son, God comes, breaks into the darkness. He breaks into the world to bring the light of salvation to those who would believe. And I think that you and I should pause right there and stop here just for a moment and think about what that means. Jesus, the pre-existent creator God who made you, breaks into the darkness to save you because in the darkness of your heart, there is nothing you can or will do to save yourself. That God himself had to come to rescue you. And in his humiliation, take on human form as Jesus and die because of and for your sins. Brothers and sisters, we are that bad. And just like today, just like today, Jesus, the word, was rejected by many despite his offer of salvation and despite the signs and wonders that showed him to be God. Jesus, the glorious word of God, was the true light, rejected. John says in verse 10 that he came into the physical world, the world he created, but that the world did not know him. That is, they, they did not recognize him for who he was, did not respond to him as, as God, the creator. And when John uses the word world the third time here, he doesn't mean the universe, but rather the created order of mankind in rebellion against its creator. In John 7, 7, Jesus helps us see this when he says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that it's works or evil. And worse yet, we get to verse 11, and what happens? It says, he came to his own people, and even they 
didn't receive him. John's talking about the Jewish people here now, not general humanity. The Jewish people, the very people God chose to be his treasured possession. The ones God sent the prophets to to proclaim the coming of the Messiah. The one about which Isaiah said of the coming Messiah in verses, chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And they rejected him. They didn't receive him, it says, and worse yet, they crucified him. And this is despite, despite the witness of John the Baptist, about whom the prophets foretold God would send to make ready the way for the Lord to come. If you look back in verses 6 through 8, where John's talking about John the Baptist, John tells us that, that he wasn't the light. People would, though, ask him, right? In the Gospels, we've seen him. They go, are you the Christ, John? Are you Elijah? They had that question, right? But John's saying clearly he wants you to know that before you even get to the rest of the Gospel, that it wasn't him. That God had sent him as a witness to the light, but he wasn't the light. He was sent to testify about Jesus, and he had a purpose, John tells us, so that through his witness, people might believe in Jesus. And I know as I sort of got to the end of that whole thing, I, I always have the feeling this seems really grim, doesn't it? We see the glory of Christ as, as God who breaks into the world as the true light, and we see rejection. People still reject him today, and they will in the future. Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, that the gospel is veiled to those that are perishing. That the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And why? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And the truth is, people prefer the darkness. John says it in John 3, 19 through 20. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But John's going to give us some hope here at the end. In the last two verses, we're going to rotate our diamond just one last time. And it's going to show us the radiance and the glimmer of the light of the gospel and the glory of Jesus. We ask our question one more time, right? Who is the Word of God? And the answer to that question, John's going to tell us, Jesus, the true light received. Look with me at the last two verses. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. John here goes from tragedy to triumph, from rejection to reception. Jesus was rejected by his own people, and he was rejected by the world. But John here is saying, wait, some did receive him. And let me tell you what that looks like. What does it look like to receive him? And I want, to, I want you to see two things this morning in this last two verses. To receive is to believe, and to believe is a work of God. To receive is to believe, 
and to believe is a work of God. So when I say to receive is to believe, what I mean is to receive, to receive Jesus, the true light of salvation, is to believe, as John says, in his name. Now, names for you and I, that, that, when I say in his name, that doesn't mean as much to us, right? Because names are just labels for us, right? I'm Bob. That's pretty much all that means, right? <laughs> Hi, Bob. Thank you. What? All right, here we go. Yeah. Okay, but this wasn't so in the first century. Names had meanings then, right? Names meant something about the person. They, they referred to the character of the person. They told us something about them, who they are. So to receive Jesus means to believe he is who he says he is, that he came to do what he said he came to do, and that he did what he did. Now, John doesn't tell us all of that in the prologue, right? But he unpacks it in his gospel. He unpacks it for us there, and the rest of the Scripture certainly testifies to the fullness of what that means. But we can say it means to believe that Jesus, the pre-existent creator God, who created the universe, broke into the world that he created, his world. The world that, because of its sin and rebellion, is mired in darkness. That Jesus, the Word of God, came to shine the light of salvation into darkened hearts, so that those who would believe in him wouldn't perish, would have eternal life, and to offer the forgiveness of sins and the right to become the children of God. But I also said to believe is the work of God. That's what John tells us here in the last part, verse 13. John tells us that this reception of Jesus, this believing, is a work not of man, but of God. Look with me again at verse seven, uh, 13, where John is talking about giving those who believe the right to become children of God. He says, these children of God were what? They were born. But not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John's talking here about being born again. He's talking about the new birth. The new birth is a supernatural work that God does in the heart of, of people through his spirit that persuades them of the truth of the gospel such that they believe in Jesus. He's saying they are spiritually reborn. And if we go into John's gospel and into his encounter with Nicodemus, Jesus tells Nicodemus the same thing. Chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus really wasn't sure what he meant, right? Because Nicodemus is thinking in earthly terms, right? He doesn't know what Jesus is talking about here. So he asks him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Right? And Jesus, in his characteristic patience and compassion, says, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water in the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And that means there is, there is nothing that you or I can do on our own to become children of God. We must be born again. It's not an act of man. It's an act of God and John says it three ways to emphasize it so that there's no chance that we have a possibility of thinking anything different. 
When he says that they were born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God, he is saying this. This birth is beyond the process of nature, beyond your Jewish descent or your genealogy, beyond every action of the body and beyond human will. This birth is an act of God. And for you and I, this means that you're not a believer, you're not saved, you're not part of God's family simply because you grew up in a Christian family or because you go to church every Sunday or because you pray to God sometimes or even because you believe God exists. James tells us in James 2.19 that even the demons believe in God and they are surely not part of God's family. Now John tells us that we must be reborn. That that's an act of God and we must believe in the name of Jesus. Who he is, why he came, and what he did to seek and save a people for himself. We must believe in the gospel. We must believe what John and the rest of Scripture teach us. That Jesus is the word of God, the eternal pre-existent creator who came in human form into the world he created to shine the light of salvation in darkened hearts of people. That he died on a cross for your sins, taking the wrath of God on himself that you could not possibly bear. And he rose again showing that his sacrificial atonement on the cross was sufficient, causing you to be declared not guilty before a holy God. And that to receive this light of salvation, you must be reborn, which is a work of God, and believe in Jesus through faith in him alone. Now I want to finish, and I want to really want to honor God, John's purpose in writing this gospel in the final application, which as you recall was evangelism. So that people would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, they would have eternal life. So I want to ask a question. I want to talk to each and every one of you. Do you believe? Do you believe? I ask that question because I'm going to do everything I can to not get emotional. Because I once sat in this church eight years ago. And I didn't believe. I rejected Christ because I preferred the darkness. I even believed in God. And God had me here in that church, even though I didn't believe. And he shined the light of Christ into my heart. And I ask it today because I want to talk to whoever is here that maybe is like me, like I was. Maybe who doesn't believe all this stuff, or maybe you don't know if you believe. And I want to implore you this morning to consider the gospel of Jesus Christ. To ask God to remove the veil that blinds you to the light. To cause you to be born again, that you might believe in Jesus and see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty God, you are a loving God, and we praise you, Lord, for your word this morning. Your word makes us makes wise the simple, and it pierces our souls like a like a sword, discerning our thoughts and intentions.
and our heart. And we praise you for this picture you've given us this morning, the beauty and perfection of the word of God, Jesus Christ. You tell us that through him you created everything and not one thing came into existence that was created apart from him. The one who existed in all eternity past and who is in the beginning with you and was God. Who became flesh and broke into the darkness to shine the light of salvation into our darkened hearts. And Lord, we praise you for your plan of salvation and rejoice that the darkness cannot overcome it. And by believing in his name, we become your children, Lord, part of your family. So God, I lift up anyone who is here today and, and is not trusting in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and those who just haven't received him as Lord and Savior. And I ask that you would soften their hearts this morning. Remove the veil from their eyes, Lord. Draw them to your Son in faith. Lord, you alone are worthy of our worship and our love. Help the meditation of our, our heart be focused on you, Lord Jesus, as we reflect this Advent season on your, on your first coming and as we look forward with eager anticipation to the day you come again. We lift these up in Jesus' name. Amen.